What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Let's talk today a little bit about picture books. I love reading picture books in part because they demand a greater sense of attention from me as a reader because I have to decode both the pictures and the words. The finest examples of picture books actually integrate these two storytelling mediums to make up a holistic story that is greater than the sum of its parts. This means that in picture books, pictures and text must work hand in hand to make a great story. The way these two elements work together can certainly vary for book to book. In one book, the text and pictures might support one another, both telling the same story but just conveying it in different ways. In other picture books, the text and pictures might be more in contrast, where the text and the pictures contradict each other. I love all forms of picture books, but I'm especially fascinated by the second type, where text and pictures don't tell the same story. My favorite example of this kind of story is Oh, Were They Ever Happy by Peter Spear. In this story, the parents have gone out for the day, but sadly, the babysitter never shows up. So the three kids are left to their own devices. They decide that they are going to do something to help out their parents. And knowing that they have been talking about painting the house, they decide to take on the job. With all the paint and supplies in the garage, they are ready to go. In this book, the text conveys all the happy things the kids are doing, painting the woodwork and even cleaning up when they're done. But the pictures reveal an entirely different story. The woodwork is all different colors and the paint is dripping in big globs down the side. The bathroom where they clean themselves and the brushes is an explosion of color and mess. The title of the book, shared also on the last page, shows the multicolored house with kid paint footprints all over the lawn and driveway and exclaims, oh, were they ever happy. But by then, because of the pictures, we know that the parents were less than happy. These kinds of wonderful picture books that use pictures and text to tell such delightfully different stories are master examples of the art that show to me here at Rachel's World just how important the interplay of text and pictures can be for amazing storytelling. There's a saying, works more fun when it's done with more than one. This insight just happens to be a fundamental premise for almost any learning camp devised for children. Today, Rachel introduces us to Dr. Aaron Hawkins, professor in the BYU Electrical Engineering Department, who directs one such learning camp. He's the founder-director of the BYU CHIP Camp, offered to students in the 7th and 8th grades. Kids at CHIP Camp dive into the field of engineering, electronics, and circuitry, participating in a special project done in teams. Sometimes their experience at CHIP Camp inspires future career choices. Here's Rachel with Dr. Aaron Hawkins. We're in studio today with Aaron. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Aaron, you are one of the founders of the CHIP Camp. So to start out, why don't you tell us what that is? Okay. Well, I want to give lots of credit for CHIP Camp to uh, the Micron Foundation up in Boise, Idaho. They are our forerunners 
for sure, and uh, financial supporters and intellectual supporters too. So Chip Camp originated with with Micron Foundation up around the year 2000 in Boise, and so they have been running that to promote um, the semiconductor industry and STEM fields locally in Boise. And uh, we've had a good relationship with the Micron Foundation. And a few years ago, we got together and decided, how about if we try running a chip camp out of a university? So we are now in our fourth year of chip camp here at BYU. And I would say it, it just keeps getting better and better and, and more and more um, interest and participation. That's so great to hear because I think these kinds of opportunities are key, particularly for our young people as they're growing and learning in these fields. So what was the basic things that you wanted to accomplish as you started this this new version of the chip camp? Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we wanted to keep all the strengths of the old version of the, the chip camp. And one of the well, I think the main motivation for it is to excite kids about um, STEM and math and science and and STEM careers. So um, they'll spend three days in chip camp doing different activities, and none of them last for very long, none of these activities. So you don't dive very deeply into any particular subject, but the idea is to motivate them let them know they can do difficult things and that science and technology is, is fun and exciting and a, a team-based effort. And hopefully it's something that they will want to pursue um, as they go forward. So Chip Camp is designed for 7th and 8th graders. And the Micron Foundation just determined that that was the critical age for um, when they make their decisions – for for their future and and uh, that there was sort of a, a a hole there that wasn't getting filled and so that's why we're going after that age. Well, I would agree with the Micron Foundation that seventh and eighth is pretty critical and very pivotal for these students. And I find it really interesting that particularly in this in the camp that you're not focusing on content knowledge, right? You're not teaching you're not teaching science and technology per se. You're teaching more skills, right? And you liked. I really like that you said you're teaching them how to do hard things and you're teaching them about teamwork. Mm -hmm. Is that really the focus that you're trying to do more kind of skills based than content knowledge based? And why that why that focus? Well, I think there's a combination of that. Um, Some of the students will come in knowing quite a bit. For instance, we we do some teaching on programming and programming microcontrollers. And um, some of these students have been programming for, you know, since they were – Since they, they were could born. walk, right? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, you sit them down in front of a computer and say, program this up, and they're done in five minutes, where others will – they've never even attempted it before. So you've got to adapt your activities – um, around lots of different backgrounds and, and skill levels. So for some people, everything you show them is new. For other students, it's old It's old hat. They've seen it before. So you've got to design your activities so that no matter where they're stepping into it, um, there's something interesting, some interesting problem that they're attacking. 
and they can go as fast or as slow as, as they want. So you focus more, you say, problem solving, so this kind of problem-based education. So what kind of problems do you put before them that they have to solve? Well, the, the things that everyone likes best when they're learning something is, uh, is to design, design something, to be creative and um, take the concept and, and use it to design. Those are really hard um, problems to 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 engineer to come up with as an educator. It's hard to to come up with these design um, things. But for instance, one of the thing one of the very unique projects that Chip Camp does is a is a frisbee that lights up, and it has LEDs along the, the top surface, and so you program that frisbee with a microcontroller that we've we've built in and made all this custom for chip camp and then we teach the the kids how to how to do the microcontroller and like i said some are really fast at it and others are are slower um but then we give it and say design a light pattern the way you want it to work and so they'll spend um an hour or two um figuring out how to get the frisbee to work and then designing um, this light show around their Frisbee. And then they take it home. So we give them this thing and, and say, go program it on your own, your home computer. Hopefully, a lot of them are doing that. And so it can last as long as they want it to. Um, I think that is the best example of, of uh, what we're trying to do. I really appreciate the fact that what you're trying to do here isn't just provide learning for this context, but you're also giving them tools and techniques that they can take home. Because I bet mm-hmm. all of those kids go home and show all of their friends yes, <laughs> what they yes, can do, yes, yes. what they can do with with mm-hmm. their frisbee. So I I think this kind of extension that you're doing there's this three day experience, but then yeah. you're also ensuring that at least there's some tools and readiness mm-hmm. for them to take home is key to this experience because you're not just looking here for this one-time thing. You're looking right. for lifelong change. Right. You're right. Ideally, I want to see those kids uh, back in the engineering program uh, when they're in college. And I, I tell them that my hope for them is that they one day are the counselors for chip camp. That, that's when my, my journey will be full circle when I now have some former chip camp students who are now counselors and running the program. So you're not quite ready because you've only been doing it yeah, for four years. Yeah, we've only been doing it for four years. So, <laughs> so I've still got, got about co- two or three two years to go before, before I should you still have the graduates my, my that you need. <laughs> yeah, fruits of the fruits, fruits of the labor. Seeds, so yes. we'll have to have you back in three or four years and, and see how things are going. Right, right. But what in the meantime, what kind of feedback are you getting, particularly from the kids or maybe from their parents? Well, um, universally, it's positive, um, which is t- tough to accomplish with seventh and eighth graders. But for the most part, they really have fun and they all feel like they learned something. And the parents especially feel like they learned something. The, the feedback we get from some parents um, told me that his son went to chip camp. And before that point, he, was, he wasn't sure what he was interested in. But it wasn't going to be science and technology. But after chip camp, he took his home his, his um, frisbee and programmed it for for days on end and now is set on on becoming an engineer so these can really be formative 
formative experiences for the kids. I think I am, am surprised and pleased to learn just how much of an effect it can have on um, these students. And 7th and 8th graders, like I said, they're, they seem like this, the most difficult age group to reach. And sometimes you'll just you're pulling out your hair when you're when you're talking to the group as a whole because they don't seem to be listening at all but from everything we see they really are and uh you get them together and you you put a bunch of college students in front of them they do have a a respect and an admiration for them and these these kinds of things um will cha- will change their life i mean when you look back and you think what changed my life I think some of some of these kids they'll they'll look back and think chip camp. And I appreciate that amazing opportunity that you're providing for these kids to really delve into this. So whether it's chip camp or some other opportunity, let's as adults start looking for some great ways to open up the STEM fields to our students. Thank you so much, Aaron. Yes. Dr. Aaron Hawkins of the BYU Electrical Engineering Department and founder-director of the BYU CHIP Camp, talking about the program and the difference it's making in the lives of 7th and 8th grade student attendees. Next, Rachel talks to literacy reading expert Melanie Kuhn. When does reading begin? How early in life? And what works best for adults really wanting to make a big difference? Melanie R. Kuhn is a professor of literacy at Purdue University, and has written two books on fluency, along with numerous scholarly articles and chapters. Her most recent book is Developing Fluent Readers, Teaching Fluency as a Foundational Skill, co-authored with Laurel Levy. Her research includes literacy instruction for struggling readers. Here's Rachel and Melanie Kuhn. We are on the phone today with Melanie. Welcome, Melanie. Hey, thank you for having me, Rachel. Oh, Melanie, I am very excited to introduce you and your expertise to our listening audience today. I think the things that you talk about and that you advocate for, especially in the area of literacy, are really important. And one of those things that I share as something that I find really important is just making reading fun and enjoyable. So tell us a little bit about how can we make reading more fun and enjoyable for our kids all the time? It's a really good question. I think one of the things, um, the pressures in schools right now make schooling seem like work when you're at home. And I think it's very important to separate the reading that you do for fun from your schoolwork. So there are different ways I think you can do that. One of the most important is when your children are young is you can read to them. Just bedtime reading, reading them books. The second thing is as they start getting older, I think it's fun for you and your children to read the same books and just discuss them. We have a situation where we are spending more and more time with screens. Books seem to be being pushed to the side. I think it's important to actually refocus on print. And that's not to say that ebooks or um, computer time aren't important. Obviously they are, and they're part and parcel of our lives now. 
But if we, as adults, model for our children and spend time showing your children that you love reading and making that a dedicated reading time, I think it's a really positive way of, and non-pressured way of making sure that your kids see the value in it. That, I think, is the most important point to me, seeing the value in it. And you make an interesting comment there that we need to return to our value in print while not negating the importance of the kind of digital technologies that all of our kids interact with today. That sense of the printed book and the printed word still has great value, I would think, in my personal opinion. What What is your opinion of that? And how, how do you think we can maybe reconnect some of that value of that printed word for our kids? I think you're absolutely right. Um, the research actually indicates that we comprehend better when we are using printed text. So newspapers or um, multiple articles or books, because it's simply easier for you to navigate. Um, the other thing is that when you actually are writing, um, when you take notes by hand, your comprehension increases as well. There's something about that tactile component that makes our brains uh, focus better. I don't know. There, there's probably a better way to say that, but um, I think by, again, by modeling it, by actually making the effort to read a newspaper in front of your child, to read a magazine or a book in front of your child, I, I think that helps them clarify the importance of those texts. I appreciate you bringing up that really solid research because I think a lot of people just feel about print, the kind of warm fuzzies of of having a printed book. But there really is this marvelous research out there that shows just how important those kind of printed pages are for us for comprehension and particularly for learning. So I really appreciate you bringing that up because there's there's more to print than just just the warm fuzzies, even though that should be enough. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because I work with um, undergraduates who have grown up with technology, and they actually prefer books as well. They would rather have something that they can read and that they can write on, even when it's something as simple as an article or a textbook. You would think that they'd rather use their Kindles, but they don't. I think Kindles absolutely have a purpose if you're going on a trip um, or your iPad if you need to... um, read and communicate through social media or you have a book that, you know, a big heavy book and you don't want to take it on vacation with you. But there are things that we absolutely can use books for in a unique way. The fact that we can move back and forth amongst the pages, the fact that we can go to multiple things that are right at our fingertips. You know, if we have five books on volcanoes, we can look up and see different things, the way the words are used in different passages, and it gives us uh, freedom and ease that you couldn't have even if you had the multiple screens open on your on your laptop. That's a wonderful point because I think that what we want our kids to have is success with reading and success with the engagement. So it really just depends on 
what is best to make them successful. So what are some things that you think are important as we focus on that? How can we help our kids be successful readers? I think it's interesting because right now the research is coming to a convergence on certain ideas. And I think that basically this recognition that oral language development, developing students' vocabulary, and also um, vocabulary development and conceptual development through books tie together to make children successful. And that's something you can do easily. By reading a lot to children, you're exposing them to much broader vocabulary. And you're also exposing them to many more ideas. And you can follow those up with a TV show about something if you want. And then you can feed into the book. So if, for example, you have a child who's interested in the solar system, there's many, many books out there that will help explain that far more completely than I would be able to do on my own. So if you start by building up oral language through your reading, through your use of words in, in the home, and then you reinforce that and use those in your conversation, when your children start reading independently, they're going to have an easier time recognizing those words, understanding the concepts, and their reading's going to bloom. I really appreciate that contrast because I think most people listening in will probably understand why we need to know the words and have the vocabulary. But that concept of conceptual understanding, understanding the concepts, I think is so critical. And I think sometimes, um, particularly as concerned adults, we don't quite pay as much attention to as we do, do you know what this word means? Or do you know how to define this word? So Focus a little bit on that conceptual knowledge. What What is something besides talking about it and using multiple sources that you think would be a great way for us to extend our understanding of that idea and helping our kids engage with it? I think if you think about vocabulary and conceptual knowledge as slow growth, um, Scott Parrish uses the term constrained and unconstrained. Constrained skills in reading are skills that have a limit. There's a certain number of letters that you can learn. There's a certain speed at which you can read. And then you you reach a sort of peak and you stay around that peak. This contrasts with vocabulary and comprehension. It can grow forever. There's a virtually unlimited number of words and ideas out there. And we build in units. So say I'm learning about eagles, and then I learn about the environment eagles live in, and then I can learn about the relationship between the environment and pollution, or I can learn about other predators, or I can learn about prey, and all these things tie in together. And so we start to learn these words incrementally, the more we use them, the more ideas we have about them, the stronger the conceptual links become. And by doing that, we're building up vocabulary and knowledge, but in a way that's not painful. That's not, you have to do this now, you have to study this now. It, it happens in a very natural way. And I think the children who 
are exposed to these things, they tend to be middle-class children, but it seems almost as if they're learning without trying. Whereas students who aren't exposed to these multiple things, it's a much harder learning curve because almost everything that they're encountering is new. And so you want to make that easier for them by giving them as broad a base as you can. Melanie, that is a marvelous way to look at it. And I think this sense of community and using a lot of different sources and making this broad base is just a really great way to make reading accessible and enjoyable for all of our kids. As we close up our conversation today, Melanie, tell me what is one thing that you would hope that our listening audience would take away from our conversation today? I think if there was one thing, I would try to make some form of reading a community activity within the home. So whether it's that you're following the recipes or whether it's that you're following instructions to create some kind of game for your children or a craft or whether it's that you're sharing the story together, Focus on something that your children enjoy, and you'll enjoy it as well. And by doing that, I think you're going to make reading a focal place in your home. And that is what I would wish for all children in all homes across the world. A focal point is reading in their homes. Thank you so much, Melanie, for your time today and for your insight. And hopefully this will be great for our listening audience to go and have a broader understanding of what reading can look like in their homes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. Literacy expert Melanie Kuhn talking about how we can help our children enjoy reading all the time. We finish up the show today with Rita Wright, director of the Springville Museum of Art in Utah. I began the conversation by asking her what the museum offers to the families that visit. The museum has an extensive history tied to Utah artists and Utah artists traveling abroad and Utah artists experimenting with new styles, forms, media. It's really a pretty exciting place and our kids and our families definitely pick up on that since that it just enriches the whole cultural environment. If they feel like it's exclusive, then they don't see a value to their lives. But what we really hope to do is say there is something for everyone at the museum. We do interpretive materials, we do tours, those kinds of things that are based on getting the prior knowledge of the individual coming to the museum engaged with what's here. So finding art, but finding ways to help people in their different worlds to relate to it. Yeah, yeah, I feel very strongly about what we call inquiry-based learning, that we are here to facilitate the experience, that we want to involve all of the senses in this learning process, that we want the kids to look at the art and say, wow, I respond to that color, or there's a neat story embedded there. There's something about that that makes sense to me, helps me see my own life in a new light or aspect. Why is it important for children to interact with great art? What's so special about art? (laughs) Well, from a more scientific level, there are other things going on. There are cognitive skills. There are sensory, affective, emotional skills that are being developed as they 
engage with a piece. If it's something visually, there are different receptors in the brain that respond to those kinds of experiences. So we're finding that there's a pragmatic aspect of having kids involved with art, but there are also these cultural intellectual heritages that that carry us forward as a society that help us relate to the human condition and to individuals that people are different. Artists are different. They like different styles. They like different colors. They like working with their hands. And so that we're just broadening their ability to interact with other human beings and other social institutions on a variety of levels. It's not a classroom, book learning kind of thing. A museum is a place of experience. Rita Wright, director of the Springville Museum of Art in Utah, talking about the potential for learning that is offered to families in the museum. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org. <laughs>